from an athlete's perspective, it's very common in tennis to experience, you know, um, you know, heat stroke, cramping, things like that, because we play in very hot conditions a lot of the year. So to be able to understand when you're really dehydrated and when your um, kind of ability and like level of play will start going down uh, would be really interesting to, to be able to track and kind of, um, you know, uh, not allow uh, to happen and be able to kind of be ahead of the ahead of the game there. So would have loved something like that. This is the Sports Tech All-Stars podcast, showcasing outstanding startups and initiatives in the global sports tech ecosystem. From Sports Tech X, the leading source for data and insights about sports tech, here is your host, Roan Maholtra. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Tech All-Stars podcast. We are on the cusp of releasing our latest sports tech venture capital report. You might already be reading it uh, by the time, might have already read it by the time you see uh, or hear uh, this episode. Yeah, it's been a fun year for the investment space um, in sports tech. Not if you're a founder in sports tech. Actually, it's probably not been very fun for you. Uh, investment numbers have been at a low since we've been tracking this data. Um, as of 2014, I believe, is the first year that we were really looking at it. But that does not mean that there is no money. We've actually seen M&A activity at an all-time high uh, over that same period. So it's, again, it's not that there is no capital for investment. It's just been funneling around and swirling around in different ways. Founders have capital or will find it. More importantly, and I wrote an article about this recently, um, that it's not just that there is kind of this flowing around of capital. There is so much more new money and new investors who have entered into this space. Sports tech is an attractive proposition, it would seem. And a lot of that capital is just waiting to be deployed. On today's episode, we're going to be talking to one of those new funds who have entered the market. I've got CC Bellis, the founder and general partner at Carton Capital on the show today. Welcome to the episode, CC. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ron. Excited to chat. CC, I feel like the founder general partner thing is does you no justice whatsoever because CC, by the way, is also a former world number 35 on the WTA tour. Let me pull out my notes. What do I, what do I have here? CC, you've done a fair bit. <laughs> All right. Uh, a WTA challenger winner, six ITF tournaments, third round exits at pretty much at the Aussie Open, at the French Open, and the US Open. I mean, we're talking to a serious pro athlete here, CC. <laughs> Yeah, I had a, had a really good time playing and uh, I get to still be involved in, in tennis and sports tech with what I'm doing now. So kind of best of both worlds for sure. It sounds like a, sounds like a good place to be. Uh, we, I want to talk to you a little bit more about tennis and tennis tech. I actually just recently did a series uh, about the, I think it's called the Tennis Innovation Conference, it's a TIC, um, and we were talking about the future of tennis. So I want to talk specifically through uh, from your perspective about the growth of tennis. But before we get there, um, walk me through your journey of setting up Carton Capital. What's the story of the fund and uh, why, I guess, for you? Is that the way to go from a pro athlete to now an investor? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I played on tour uh, tennis professionally for about four or five years and kind of at the tail end of uh, my undergrad degree, which I was completing online while I was playing full time. I had been injured for quite a while in tennis, kind of the same reoccurring injury and just felt like it was time to move on. And, and lucky enough for me, 
a mile down the road from where I was training was another sports tech focus fund. And I was lucky enough to jump on board with them and, and absolutely loved it, you know, kind of merging my background and, and my interest, which was really exciting. And I grew up in the Bay Area in California. So I was, you know, felt like surrounded by VC from, you know, a very young age. And it always was something that interests me. So it really just felt like the, the best path for me going forward. And you know, I was at the fund for about three, almost four years. And the long-term goal for me was always to start my own. So I decided to go out and do that earlier this year. I feel like the next few years of VC is going to be kind of, you know, vintage uh, returns. And I think the next few years are going to be um, just a really exciting time to be investing in in uh, VC and especially in, in sports and health tech VC, which we're focused on. So that's kind of the story of how the fund came about. It was really kind of a long-term goal for me for a while. And um, we're really excited about uh, kind of getting going. We actually uh, just made our first investment. We'll be announcing it in a couple of weeks, which we're really excited about. So, um, yeah, we finally uh, got off the ground, so to say. Smashing those aces out already. All right, a couple of follow-ups. Yeah, I'm going to hear a lot of bad tennis puns from ECC. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I can't. I can't help myself. All right, so it does yeah. me a bit. But um, a couple of follow-ups to. Um, to the, to the origin story. So was it, did you already kind of feel in your playing career that this was the direction that you wanted to head in? Or was that just because of the environment, as you said, like you joined, was it, is it, it's Lake Nona, right? Leeds Sport Health Tech at Lake Nona was the one that you were working with. Um, so was it after you joined them, they were like, hey, actually, this is a really cool world and I want to uh, really get into it here. Yeah, no, great question. So I think my interest in VC really started when I was uh, growing up in California and I committed to play tennis at Stanford. And I knew that, um, you know, when I, you know, either post-college or post-professional career, VC is the, um, you know, kind of long-term career I wanted to be involved in. So it really stemmed from a young age and, you know, with my tennis career kind of ending short, um, or at least a little bit sooner uh, than I expected, of course, um, in jumping on board at, at lead sports, it was kind of the perfect, I think, path for me and, um, you know, the way to build a long-term career. Got it. Mason. And the main reason I asked that question was because we've seen this trend of like the athlete investor, right? We've yeah. seen a lot of funds which are either promoted by athletes or athletes are joining on, maybe just for the marketing and visibility. Um, but for whatever it is, athletes uh, in whichever sport are increasingly active in the sports tech space. Um, makes a lot of sense, a lot of synergies there um, for what they bring to the table. But I guess for you, it was more the West Coast Valley uh, perspective that you grew up in, which made it easy for you to jump into the fund. All right, cool. So we've, we've covered a bit of the origin stuff. Uh, let's talk about the fund. I do, I do want to cover the, your tennis career. I don't want to blow past that at all. I love talking to professional athletes. <laughs> nowhere, nowhere close to being one in my lifetime. So uh, I have tremendous admiration for anybody who's achieved that. Um, and we've had a few guests uh, on this episode, on this podcast recently, so I've had the good fortune of speaking with them. We'll come come that uh, bit towards the end, but let's focus on the fund right now. So uh, walk me through it. What is your investment thesis? What stage of uh, startups are you looking at? Maybe you can use the first deal that you've already executed as an example. What sectors within sports tech are you looking? Sports and health you mentioned already. Yeah, just walk me through what is your average uh, typical deal look like. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as a whole, it's a 10 million fund. 
uh, focused on sports tech and health tech. So on the sports side of things, you know, we'll really look at anything that touches sports that has a tech element. So, you know, anything involving sports performance, AI and sports, um, fan engagement solutions, things like that. We, we love to look at, at anything in, um, in that space. And then on the health side of things, you know, anything, uh, we like to say on the non-technical side of health. So we won't look at anything in biotech, pharmaceuticals, anything that really requires uh, clinical trials, just feel like it's slightly outside of our area of expertise. So uh, we like to look at non-technical health. So that's, you know, wellness, fitness, wearable technology, nutrition, um, you know, femtech, things like that are, are really kind of in our, our bread and butter. So um, those are kind of the sectors that we like to look at. And you know, I have a, an advisory board, an awesome advisory board that has backgrounds in uh, a lot of those areas. So we feel like we have uh, pretty deep expertise um, in most of those areas that I mentioned, which is super exciting. And then on the stage side of things, you know, we we're looking at pre-seed through Series A. I'd say mainly seed in, in early stage Series A. Uh, we love to look at companies that have already gone to market, have a little bit of traction, be able to rely on a bit of feedback. Um, that's, uh, you know, an important part of our diligence. So I would say, you know, mainly uh, seed and Series A companies and then writing initial check sizes, uh, kind of giving the range from around a quarter million to a million. But I think, you know, across the lifetime of the fund, it'll be um, kind of a quarter million and putting in a half a million into some of our favorites, uh, potentially following on to, to some earlier um, investments as well. So I guess that's kind of our thesis. Um, I don't know if I covered everything that, that you mentioned there. No, fair. Um, yeah, I think on, on the sectors, yeah, most sports tech funds are are open. It's You mentioned specifically in health, but I would also assume you're open to media and entertainment. Uh, are you going to touch gaming at all, maybe? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that'll fall yeah. under our, our sports tech um, kind of thesis as well. Definitely media, um, fan engagement, you know, in-stadium solutions, um, sports betting we'll look at. So really anything that, um, you know, has applications in sports. And I, and it's one of those where when I talk to investors, it's like, yeah, we look at everything. But there's a reason that investors, I think, are looking at everything, us included, uh, for our own fund or even just generally the deal flow I look at, is because sports tech is actually growing equally in a, well, equally, some are faster than the others, but it is growing in across a, a bunch of areas. So for a founder that's listening to it, it's not like, hey, that's just the typical stuff. No, it's the typical stuff. You're, all investors are open to because there are opportunities everywhere. So um, that's just one thing to put out there. Uh, lastly, on in terms of leading or following, like, do you have, do you like to be a bit more aggressive? For example, the deal that you've done, are you, are you participating or do you lead that round? We're following on on that round. I think, you know, uh, for the first half of our fund, we'll be mainly following on. And then kind of once we get our feet, um, you know, kind of under us, then we'll be able to, to lead a few rounds, mainly at the end of the uh, kind of deployment period, I would say. Makes sense. All right. Yeah. So um, I, I don't know if you want to talk about the deal at all that you're doing. Or is that too early still? A little early. We'll, um, we'll be ready to talk about it, I think, in a couple of weeks and then um, happy to happy to share some more information for sure. Perfect. If you want to know more, and we'll do the plugs later as well, but like CC puts out a really cool, uh, really good newsletter. I think there have been two or three editions. I've been tracking some of the stuff that you did. I think you did one on wearables. Was that edition one? And, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think last week, I forget what it was. But yeah, there's a newsletter out there in which I'm guessing this news will be covered. So you can follow them on cardincapital.com. That's C-A-R-T-A-N hyphen capital.com. All right. So that is covering a bit of the investment thesis. Um, I want to talk about your journey about setting up the fund, because I think the period that we're in, it really feels like, like I said, like the capital has dried up in terms of liquidity available in the market. 
what was your experience with raising the fund um, to get to yeah. the stage that you are? Yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, definitely been uh, kind of an enlightening period uh, for me, first time fundraising. So um, a bit of a learning curve along the way. And our fund structure is pretty flexible. So we um, it's been a bit of an easier <laughs> uh, road so far, I would say. Um, we have about 40% of the fund committed now. We'll continue fundraising uh, right. probably through summer of next year. But um, yeah, we, we have a very collaborative fund structure uh, in the way we work with LPs. So I'd say they have a bit more um, maybe comfort coming on board uh, with a first time fund manager and myself. So uh, it's definitely been difficult. And I think, like you said, um, funds have definitely dried up. But I think there is still a lot of interest in sports tech. And I think yeah. investors are really starting to get more involved in sports tech just with um I think the rise of valuations in sports teams, the rise of, you know, just uh, viewership in sports, things like that is really kind of broadening the industry and, and creating such a larger market in general. So I think it's it's an exciting time in sports tech right now. And I think um, investors are really uh, kind of seeing that and, and really showing that with capital that they're putting into funds. Yeah, it's no accident that, I mean, I've been beating this drum uh, for a while, but it's no accident that big tech themselves are looking at sports more recently, uh, more seriously. I just read an article today that uh, I think YouTube will also bid for um, NBA games. Um, everybody wants to broadcast everything, whether it's Amazon, Apple, whether it's soccer, American football, the NBA, uh, European football. Everybody wants in, and that, that pie just keeps growing and growing, and we'll see where that goes. So... It's no question that there are more investors looking at it, um, looking at the space more with more interest. But as a fund for you, is that is that a challenge? Is this more competition? Is that or is it just the everybody coming in makes the pie bigger? Or do you do you feel that that maybe pressure a bit as a as a first time fundraiser? Yeah, that's a great question. I honestly think of it as such a positive. Uh, I have so many good relationships uh, involving sports tech investing and. Um, I really feel it's a, it's a great community of investors that really, you know, want to see the growth of the industry and want to work together on really, you know, interesting deals. So we've already participated. The first deal that we did, uh, it was a follow on to a lead investor that we have a great relationship with. So I really think it's a, it's a good community of investors that all really want to see the growth of the industry. So I don't feel like it's um, going to hurt us too much. I actually think of it as a, as a positive to be able to uh, be a part of a, a growing industry, which is really what the goal is a VC is to, to be a part of kind of, um, you know, earlier stage growing industries. So exciting times. Yeah, that's the thing. I think it's too early to be competitive. Mm -hmm. I think this is this is the point where everybody has to be and they are, which is the great thing about working in the industry right now. Everybody is more collaborative, sharing information, sharing deal flow, sharing perspectives. So good startups, it's will come up, will come up on multiple people's radars and and obviously, as everybody knows, investors talk and investors talk in quite a lot of detail. Uh, very often as well, even if they're not participating in a round. So that perspective is useful to share. Um, let's talk about, I mean, I know we described a lot of sectors that are really interesting to you uh, from media, entertainment, and and, and, uh, and fitness, health, everything. But if I had to put you on the spot and give me two or three specific topics that you're really looking at keenly, where let's say un, you're passively open to everything, of course, mm -hmm. But maybe there is a couple of things that you're actively pursuing a bit more. Yeah, what, what absolutely. Are those to you? 
Yeah, so we're really interested in wearable technology. Um, I think the growth of this industry is going to be massive over you know the next ten years. Moving from kind of general fitness trackers, I'm wearing a Whoop right now, but also moving into kind of uh, the health side of things. So being able to hit multiple different buckets that we're looking at. I think consumers in general want more data points from their workouts, from you know their sleep, from just their overall health, and I think that's just going to continue growing. Uh, it's an industry that we're really excited about. And definitely um looking at another one i think um you know kind of fan engagement before you move on there just to stay on wearables for a second um because it's something that we talk a lot about like i mean whatever device you're using whoop is one of those that gives you a ton of data which can be for somebody for some uh, and has proven to be like a bit of an overload as well like hey that maybe it might be a bit too much but for others it's fantastic so but basically whoop is giving you sleep uh, recovery, uh, anything related to do with your heart, with whatever it can it can gather, it almost feels like the wearables market is maturing, right? Mm-hmm. So this, like, I don't know, wh- where do you think is the upside? Are there any specific data points? For example, there's one company that we've been looking at recently, which is doing um, lactate uh, threshold and muscles, so like muscle fatigue and stuff, through just wearing uh, the first layer, your base layer. Right sensors within that, like that look, that kind of stuff looks interesting, and that's new. Yeah. Um, so, are there any metrics within this quantified athlete uh, persona that we've built, where it's a strong one, and that's an athlete that's paying a lot as well? Are there any specific touch points or data points that you're interested in, CGM or I don't know, whatever? Yeah, it might. yeah, definitely. I think you know the CGM industry has been growing for for quite a while, especially kind Sorry, of continuous glucose monitoring for anybody who doesn't follow yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, apologies. Um, and, you know, especially during COVID that we saw that a huge boost there. I think, you know, we've been looking at a company in the sweat wearable space, so monitoring mm-hmm. hydration. I think that's a, a really interesting one. And and I think wearables in general, the way the market's going to grow is the fact that they'll be applicable to health, um, you know, uh, monitoring as well. So overall health monitoring, where whether it's health, uh, sorry, heart, you know, lungs, things like that, encom- like an all-encompassing type of wearable that's not, you know, just focused on fitness tracking or sleep tracking, things like that. I think moving into the health side, it's a much larger market, you know, being able to um, potentially be a prescription for for some right. um, different health conditions. And, and that's it's the a, insurance that's, thing, right? That's what that's the segment you want to tap into. Yeah, where, exactly. Where it gets that's insurer covered. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one of the sectors we're excited about. Another one, I think, uh, fan engagement technology. So that could, you know, range from anything from, uh, viewership experiences at home could be in stadium experiences, um, could be better, you know, just better ways to, um, you know, engage and monetize fans, uh, from like a sports team, a sports league perspective. Uh, we're looking at a couple companies in that space as well. Um, I don't know if you wanted me to dive deeper into that or, or move on to the next. Yeah, no, actually, yeah, perfect. Thank you for giving me that pause because I do want to dive deeper in that one. They're usually, the um, the first thing that people want to talk about when it comes to fan experience, or at least has been the trend in 21, 22, uh, and maybe not so much in 23, was Web3, right? Mm-hmm. Anything which is, NFTs have become a bad word, but that underlying technology is still relevant, might be used for ticketing, smart contracts, whatever it might, whatever else. So there's one fan experience use case, which is Web3-based. There might be another, which is mixed reality-based, which is your XR, uh, put on a headset, or just through your phone, augmented reality, whatever. Is it? Are any of those of particular interest uh, to you guys? Or, or as, it, as you said, it can be anything at home, in stadium, it's much bit broader. 
Yeah, um, you know, AR, VR, MR, super interesting to us. Uh, I am familiar with a few companies in the space, like in-stadium technology that uses um, augmented reality. Super, super interesting. Um, And I think just being able to engage younger fans, Gen Z fans more with the technology that, you know, they have in their hands at all times, I think is going to be the path forward for that industry for sure. Makes sense. All right, cool. So we got through it. We got through with number two. Let's go to number three. You have yeah, one more. Yeah, uh, third one I would say is probably ticketing. Um, okay. I think I guess kind of in the um, somewhat of the fan engagement uh, vertical as well. But I think the ticketing space is is super ripe for disruption. Um, we're seeing a ton of companies in that in that space that are trying to. Um, you know, some are trying to compete with the large, you know, the seat geeks, the ticket masters, but I think also uh, the companies that are going to be able to be kind of grandfathered in by those, by those larger players are going to be the ones that end up, um, you know, succeeding. And whether it's, uh, you know, having tech that overlays onto those um, larger players or um, partnering with those and being able to have the bigger players pull them up, you know, things like that. Uh, I think that's, that's a really interesting space for us. We're seeing a few companies, um, already kind of, uh, in that area and, and definitely looking deeper, um, on that side of things as well. I had the founder of Dibs on the podcast uh, a while ago. And, and one of the things that he brought up, which I thought was super relevant to talk about is that the, the big players, the ticket masters and such of the world really act as gatekeepers for this industry. This industry is, yeah, you, you want to say web three based or, uh, blockchain based ticketing is a no brainer. It gives you so much authentication value, blah, 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 easy exchange, all that kind of stuff. But if they don't want it, it's SeatGeek and Ticketmaster and all of them don't want it, it doesn't get in, right? And it's, so it's very much how you can work with these guys to get your technology through the door and, and then really bring innovation uh, to a wider audience. That was his opinion. Has that been your yeah. experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, complete same page. I think, um, like you said, they are the gatekeepers of the industry. And um, it is a very... Um, kind of uh, uh, like gated and, and like kind of a, it's a bit mysterious of a cartel, no? We can use the back, we can use that word. Like it, it sounds like it. Like these guys run the show because yeah. they have, they, they, or they own all the contracts. They own all, all, work with all the rights holders and the rights holders don't want to say no to them. It's not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So no, I know I, I completely agree there. And it's, it's an interesting space because I think there is so much room for growth outside of those large players. And I think uh, in the next 10 years, we'll, we'll see a totally different ticketing uh, kind of landscape. You'd hope so, right? You'd hope so. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 my own small experience, and this is, this is retarded, but um, so every Christmas I usually go to uh, near Manchester, which is where my daughter's grandparents live. So Christmas is with, with her grandparents in Macclesfield, and I, I don't celebrate Christmas, so I just go. And I will usually try to catch the Boxing Day game, uh, United, which is my team. And just the process to get that ticket and uh, either get it, I have a season holder friend who will either get me his or he'll have to look amongst his friends or I'll be searching on some very dubious websites to really know. Like it's, I was like, it cannot be in 2023 that it's such a <laughs> challenge because I know that there are tickets for that game. I'm 100% sure, but just there has to be a better way to do this. And it really feels that I know that there are, because we track the market, that you know there are a ton of good solutions out there, but I can't use them. And it, the, 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 this 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 needs this cartel this control needs to be broken. I feel. Yeah, I know. I, I completely agree. I think that's a great perspective. Um, definitely the way we're we're seeing it as well. So yeah, I think those are kind of the three um, exciting verticals that we're looking into. Of course, a couple areas in health, but um, yeah, on on the sports side of things, those are our favorites right now. 
Stay up to date with all things sports tech and sign up for our newsletter. You'll get a monthly breakdown of the most important developments in the global sports tech ecosystem, paired with exclusive interviews with industry leaders. Get all of this and more delivered directly to your inbox. Sign up today at sportstechx.com. Okay, I want you to take off your investor hat and put on your players, uh, player tennis cap. <laughs> what would have been a piece of tech that you see now or see the potential of right now that would have helped you, you think, when, when you were playing? That would have been, hey, if I had access to that, either something that doesn't exist or maybe something that you're seeing already. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, from an athlete's perspective, I have uh, certain biases towards towards companies that I feel like I would have used, and um, wearable companies like the one I mentioned in the the hydration um, tracking space is something I would have loved when I was playing, and something I definitely would have used. I think you know at the training center that I was at, as our national training center. Um, all of the players would have wanted to use something like that to be able to track that. It's very common in tennis to experience, you know, um, you know, heat stroke, cramping, things like that. Cause we play in very hot conditions a lot of the year. Right. So I think having something like that to be able to understand when you're really dehydrated and when your, um, kind of ability and like level of play will start going down, uh, would be really interesting to, to be able to track and kind of, um, you know, uh, not allow, uh, to happen and be able to kind of be ahead of the, ahead of the game there. So would have loved something like that. And then, yeah, anything, um, involving kind of, uh, sports performance and like mm-hmm. AI applications in, in the way that, um, you know, my style of play, you know, against another player, things like that, I think would be, um, super interesting. We're seeing, uh, a couple of different players in that space in the, in the kind of, uh, tennis analytics space right now. But I think sports in general, I think anything involving sports performance, um, that can just enhance an athlete's performance, give them more data points, more information about, uh, competitors would be, um, super interesting for sure. I remember reading an article and this is going back a few years. It's probably the mid 2010s, so 15, 16, something like that. When, um, the GOAT Federer was kind of making that resurgent, that comeback to win his last couple of slams after he hadn't won for a while. And the story, confirmed and I don't know, but the article I read from a credible source was that he got in touch with the specific analytics company. And that's how he developed a couple of techniques, like his Sabre return yeah. came as a part of that. And just his, he got a lot, lot better with understanding the analytics side of things. And that's what got him. I think it was the 2017 Australian Open that he beat uh, Nadal in, and then he had a, a win against Djokovic again at Wimbledon. Like that, those last couple of slams after a gap came through this. Now it's more ubiquitous, I would imagine, on the tour. Like the ATP, yeah. of course, launched right their player IQ tool. Um, that's the kind of thing that you think you would have found super super useful when you were playing. Yeah. Absolutely. I think anything that, um, you know, is really tech enabling, uh, sports, whether it's, you know, on the, um, you know, data analytics side from matches or training, or even kind of on the recovery side of things, you know, being able to, um, analyze your recovery better, you know, figure out what, uh, you should do based on, um, how recovered you are, or, you know, if you're rehabbing from an injury, like being able to kind of quantify metrics on, um, you know, how well you're, you know, healing, rehabbing, recovering, really, really interesting spaces for sure. But keeping that player tennis cap on, is there a point for you that there is, is there a thing as too much data? 
is how do you how do you draw that line that you don't get bogged down by the numbers? Uh, maybe, I, I guess you can speak only for yourself because everybody's different, I'd imagine, right? In how yeah. they interact with data. But what was your experience and what was the experience of um, the pe- people you played around, uh, other girls on the tour and stuff? Yeah, you know, I think there is a point where too much data um, is a thing. And I think it you can feel when it gets to that point when, you know, you maybe have a, a report, an analytics report and there's like a million, you know, entries of things that are maybe useless or that you wouldn't really look towards. And so I think keeping it very um, refined and like an efficient data source that only um, kind of gives you the, the outputs that you really want to see uh, is something that I really liked and something I used uh, for sure while I was playing. And I think other players um, on tour use similar um, you know, analytics solutions. I know exactly the one you're talking about with Fetter and I've spoken to them many times and I've used them, uh, while I was playing. So I think, you know, having solutions that give you only the data points that you feel would be relevant and helpful and not any, um, like white noise, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think like this, like a specific example of, Hey, when it's the second serve and the do score, don't return to the backhand. Like some, just yeah. just that one thing, mm-hmm. and that's the one thing that's easy to remember. I think we've had uh, I've had a professional coach, a legendary Indian cricket coach. Well, he's South African, but he won the World Cup with India. Who was talking about the same thing on the spot, and he was like that that role of translation between data to athlete or coach. Like, how do you get reams of data into one actionable, easy? you know, piece of information rather than data point, just a piece of information that you can easily just draw out on a football field or on a on a tennis court or whatever, say, hey, just do this and that'll help you. Yeah, um, that, exactly. That and I know I, I couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, there are solutions um, now that can really tell players, you know, on a big point, you know, your opponent is most likely to serve in this spot, yeah. you know, be ready, like cover this area, things like that. But I think even going a step further and um, you know, understanding, uh, from like a person's footwork patterns or like the toss on their serve, if it's like slightly to the left, maybe they're going to go out wide on the ad side rather than go T, you know, on big points, things like that. I think that would be even more helpful to be able to make, um, you know, more informed decisions rather than like, Oh, in the past, they have gone to this area on their serve on break points, not necessarily in this match, but in their previous matches or previous tournaments, rather than like, what's going to happen right now in this match. On this point, what can I do to be able to better, um, you know, predict where they're going to go or how they're going to play the point, things like that? Context matters. Context yeah. is is the most important thing, right? Like just data on its own is of no value. Like you have to understand, like, hey, when they're playing a player like like me with maybe my build or my 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 profile of of just play whatever it is. So that's super important. Yeah. Great. Okay, let's take a step back. So I've had you from investor to player. Now just taking a step back into looking at tennis tech overall. Um, we've seen a couple of, I mean, let's say there's been the first wave of like the play sites of the world, which we're doing automatic, uh, automated line calling, do clips and highlights, and there are a few companies like that. Um, more recently, we've had a company like Swing Vision, which... It's not super recent. They've been around a while, but they just did a, 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 a nice uh, second round. I've had Swapnil on the pod as well. And they just use something, take all that big camera equipment and just make it your iPhone, right? Mm-hmm. And make it super easy for you to do all that stuff just from your device. It seems to me like, it, or a company like Wingfield, right? Which is again, doing that same thing, but with a different in a different format. It seems to me that all the action is just focused on this, like what is like line calling, 
specific player data uh, about the about the match, like analytics about the game. Is there anything else beyond this? Like what else innovation do, do you want to see in tennis? So where is tennis really headed? Uh, apart from just, hey, there's a camera which is capturing a lot of data and able to tell you all the data points that we discussed or call your lines and, and then you move on. What else, what yeah. else do you want to see? No, that, that's a great question. Um, and I think, you know, tennis has progressed like technologically in the last, you know, five or 10 years. I've used both PlaySight, Swing Vision. I've used all of them under the roof when I was uh, a player and being able to analyze them from a VC perspective now is, is uh, a wild experience, as I'm sure you can imagine. But, um, and, you know, a great, uh, great form of diligence for sure. But um, yeah, you know, I think having solutions that can maybe, um, you know, show where athletes are uh, maybe weaker in some areas, stronger in some areas, you know, being able to um, analyze their strokes and say, hey, you know, like this is an area where you could be vulnerable for injury or, um, you know, this is maybe um, different percentages of, of uh, how effective your forehand is or things like that, you know for an athlete in a match to know, you know, on a big point, if I'm on the run and going to go for a forehand down the line winner, what are my real chances of being able to hit that and make it and win the point off of that? I think that's, that's, uh, taking like one step further of data and analytics and kind of, um, you know, from an athlete's perspective, understanding, you know, what are my real chances of, of winning this point, doing this shot based on my opponent and, and what their strengths are, things like that going kind of a step further, I think is, is kind of the future of tennis analytics. And then, um, yeah. Anything for that competitive edge. Exactly. Yeah. Just going kind of one step further on the competitive edge. Um, and then, you know, I think from like a VC perspective, having tennis solutions be applicable in all sports is, is very interesting for me. Um, and just kind of gaining that, that larger market opportunity is, is really what is going to make those kind of tennis, initial tennis solutions scale um, and be kind of more of a VC case and uh, what we would look at. But I think, you know, coming from, um, you know, an athlete's perspective, I'd want a solution that, um, you know, not just tennis players are using in fitness. You know, I'd want uh, solutions that other athletes uh, find helpful um, in other sports that are, you know, don't have anything to do with tennis. And, um, you know, I think having that and having the ability to move into other areas is really interesting. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about larger market solutions, because there is a school of thought or an argument that could be made that tennis is under threat from the two of the fastest growing sports in the world, which is paddle and pickleball. Very curiously and interestingly, in completely different geographies, the, the Americans will always do their version of what they want to do, and pickleball will only grow there, and paddle is growing primarily through Europe, and we'll see what takes over the rest of the world. Um, but that brings up back to, because what's happening is a lot of tennis courts are being refurbished or repurposed, rather, um, to accommodate these additional sports. what Do you think that there is any threat to the game of tennis overall? Uh, do we need more solutions? I think it came out of the lead accelerator, like Break the Love, or um, I know there's a tennis simulator facility that's been talked about in New York, like things which are bringing more people to the game of tennis. Do you think that's a thing that tennis needs to seriously consider? I don't think there's any threat whatsoever um, for tennis from like a pickleball or paddle. Uh, I think if anything, it will kind of grow the viewership of racket sports in general. Um, I think there are ways that tennis can be more like viewer and fan friendly for sure. Um, in regards to, you know, is it matches being too long? Is it seasons being too long? You know, the tennis season is from January through now, you know, right. and players get about a month off and, and that's it. And the Masters just got done, right? Yeah. 
yeah, a lot of players are getting injured because of that. And I think viewership rates decline uh, because there's, you know, a tournament you can watch on TV every week. Why would they want to watch, you know, one right now when they can watch one next week? So I think um, there are certain things that I think can be uh, definitely improved uh, involving, you know, the growth of tennis. But I don't think pickleball or paddle will ever get to um, kind of the global popularity of being able to watch tennis. I think it's a both of them are, are awesome, um, you know, kind of like social sp- sports uh, that you play like with your, you know, family, friends. And I know there are like professional tours now and there are great athletes playing, but I think you'll never look at a, um, a professional pickleball or, or paddle player and look at them in the same aspect of like a Roger Federer right. or, you know, a Rafa Nadal or Novak Djokovic. It's, just, it's a different level and, uh, of athlete in my opinion. Well, not not yet, certainly. Maybe give it 20 years until you see that Maybe. kind of athlete emerge. But yeah, I take your point. I think tennis is still held as, held as that, it's the gold standard of racket sports. No disrespect to any of the others. Um, because again, of its history, of its legacy, which will never go away. Like nobody's taking that away. Um, so fair. Uh, similar point of view. Uh, so I had Marker Reed uh, from Tennis Australia. And I, I don't mean to be name dropping, but I think that shared perspective is important. Uh, Marker Reed is uh, the head of Wildcard Ventures. Um, uh, who are Tennis Australia's fund, and he had a similar thing. I asked him a similar question about how do you feel about pickleball and, and paddle, and his thing was, yeah, we're, listen, if it grows a sport, if it grows racket sports, if it brings cross players, people across pollinating, across formats, maybe it helps tennis innovate, it forces tennis to innovate, which I really liked about yeah. his answer that, hey, we have to kind of wake up and we can't be resting on our laurels, um, and hopefully that grows the sport overall. Um, all right, cool. Yeah, I think we've, we've done a fair bit. We covered a bit of investor stuff, some athlete stuff, some tennis innovation stuff. Um, yeah, it's just a sport. I've never played it apart from recreationally here and there, mm. but been a fan throughout and it's a sport I love. Um, and curious to see more more innovation in the space, as, as I'm sure Absolutely. you are. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, even in, in regards to pickle and, and paddle, I'm a huge pickleball fan. Like I love I was going to ask, do you have a preference between the two? Well, I've actually never played paddle, funny enough. I love playing pickleball, though. I think it's the most fun, um, you know, kind of thing to do with your family and friends. I I love it, honestly. I play a couple times a week um, and still play tennis a lot. I've never played pickleball. So I'm in Europe, right? So I've played a bit of paddle and I've never played pickleball. But I've heard it's like really addictive. It's really addictive. It's really fun. And it's what's great about pickle in in comparison to tennis is any age, any level right. can play with any age and any level. And it can be a great time and you can have a blast. Whereas in tennis, like it would not be as fun for someone at a high level to play with someone at a low level. In pickleball, it really evens the playing field uh, quite a bit. So I think that's what makes it so social and so fun. And, and that's why I think it's growing so much. I, I love it. Uh, though I will present my hot take because of that and you could I would actually curious to hear your take yeah. your perspective on it which is that for that exact reason I think pickleball will grow as a participative sport but I don't think it's really a sport that you want uh, that you want to watch yeah. like I've, I've watched it on TV and you watch like it's not really exciting like it's no. I mean yeah there's a bit of tricks and flicks and stuff but if all the points look the same yeah. And that's like the only thing that's happening. Then do I really want to invest in, I don't know, an hour, hour and a half of my day to watch that? No right. matter what the stakes, I'm not convinced. Versus a bigger sport like tennis is incredibly dynamic. There's so much going on uh, beyond the personalities of the players and all that. So that, that's my hot take. I think pickle. I think paddle is a is more in between those two. I think pickle is. I can imagine its popularity and super participatively growing, but for it to a sport really to take take on it needs 
stars. It needs those pro athletes to really make a name and shine. And I think that might be a challenge for that sport. So that's my hot take. I don't know. What do you think? I completely agree. No, I completely agree. I couldn't agree more. Maybe not so hot then. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think it's a, a pretty normal uh, normal take uh, and, right. and take that I've heard uh, quite often. I think, you know, you look at the athletes, uh, the professional athletes in tennis, you know, you're never going to need to be that good of an athlete to play pickleball. It's never going to be the same level of athlete and athleticism and like work and, and time and preparation and training that needs to go into tennis. You're never going to need to do that for, for pickleball. So I think it's, it's just a different, it's different and it's hard to compare the two. And I think people are comparing them a lot and it's not really fair for either to be compared to, right. to the other because it's so different. It both are incredible. And I, I love both. I just don't think it's, uh, there's ever really going to be a, a way to compare the two. Okay, so moving from my at best tepid take onto the the future, shall we say? Uh, let's talk about uh, let's bring it home to to Carton Capital. What does the next um, 12, 18, 24 months look like for you guys? Yeah, so um, you know we'll try and have the fund closed by spring summer of next year, and then uh, continue deploying for the next couple of years. Um, you know, looking to create a generational firm. So we'll you know start planning for fund two uh, maybe in about a year or so, which which will be really exciting. Oh, wow. uh, but so that you know, means you'll be finishing fund one pretty quick then. No, uh, we won't be finishing fund one uh, for at least two and a half years, I would okay. say. That's still fairly um, quick in a fund's life cycle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty small fund, so we'll be able to um, deploy, I would say, in like two and a half, three years total. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, move on from that. But I think we're, you know, move on, meaning start focusing on the on the next fund after that. But um, yeah, we're, we're focused on on raising and deploying uh, for next year and and continue to deploy for, for a couple of years after that. So we're we're excited about the sports tech space and, and the health tech space. And um, yeah, just really excited about the the quality of deal flow that's coming through right now. So we'll be very active investors over the next few years. I would be remiss to ask if I didn't, because I, I mentioned this right at the start of the recording that we've seen capital dried up in this market, even though there are funds such as yourself deploying um, and hopefully more, more will continue to do so. What does your perspective look like if you're talking to a startup founder who's had a tough time over the last, um, let's say, 12 months or so. They've been struggling to do their A round. They've been trying to scrabble, um, you know, uh, get to get to a bridge somehow. What do you think will the like next wave of deployment really happen in in 24? Do you do they have to wait longer? Do you have a perspective on that? That's a that's a good question. You know, I think from what I've been hearing uh, with other people in the industry as well, other investors, is that 24 will be you know, an incredible year for venture capital investing. Whether that means there's a lot of money going into um, startups, I don't know. From a return perspective, I think it'll be an incredible year to invest. Uh, I think it might be another year before we see numbers, um, you know, like prior to 20 and 21, for sure. I think it'll be a few years, if not more, uh, before that. But I think it'll be a great year overall to deploy. So we're very excited about it. I think from a startup perspective, you know, continuing to uh, push through and be scrappy in this time is really important. And knowing that the markets will balance out and, and reset. And we're in that reset period right now. So. Yeah, and especially valuations, right? Because that's the main thing that needs a bit of reset for founders. Is yeah. We're holding on to equity for dear life. Yeah, I think that's the one that you have to maybe ease off on a bit because, yeah, investors are looking for the best deal uh, to make the best return. But it's not like they're saying, hey, give me 0.75x of your revenue or something. It's still a decent multiple. Might yeah. be two, three, four, five. It's not 10, 
and it's not 20 as it has been in those incredible peak years. Some of the deals that you see are like, whoa, man, I don't know how they pulled that off. So, it, I mean, these, these investors uh, are still taking a punt. It's just about whether you're going to give them that potential upside to, to exit your um, exit your company at, uh, at some point. And in the meantime, exactly as you said, you know, be that, that ability to scrap uh, and scrap through and survive will really hold you um, good in, in long term. Um, all right, Cece, fantastic. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time, putting all those different hats on that I made you use interchangeably, which <laughs> you um, smashed smashed my serves uh, back in my court very easily. <laughs> I was a horrible, I'm doing so badly with this. But my, my last question, um, my last question, which is the one that I always like to end on, um, I like to believe there were sports fans first. So to you, what has been your favorite sporting moment? Uh, and for you, I'm going to ask it in two parts. One from your career, so as an athlete, and one just purely as a fan. Oh my gosh. Uh, from an athlete's perspective, such a hard question. Um, I think anytime playing in our home slam at the US Open is an incredible experience. Um, definitely some of my favorite memories in tennis there as an athlete. And then from a fan's perspective, I'm a huge fan of Bay Area sports teams, the Warriors, the 49ers. I think any Warriors championship in the last 10 years has been unbelievable. And I'm hoping for a 49ers Super Bowl this year. So keeping our fingers crossed. Nicely done. All right. And th then obviously Steph's historic win a couple of years ago would have been a big, big moment. Cements yeah. him in the, in the top 10 of all time in such yeah. Um, always fun to watch been a good season already so far CC it's been a pleasure mm -hmm. having you on the show uh, if anybody wants to reach out to you what's the best, best place to do that yeah uh, through our website we have a form on there um, on LinkedIn Instagram Twitter um, all of them are either Carton Capital or Carton Dash Capital so yeah feel free to reach out and CC Bellis on uh, LinkedIn C-I-C-I-B-L-L-I-S and I mentioned earlier in the episode Carton C-A-R-T-A and hyphencapital.com. Those are the details. They will all be in the show notes as well. Thanks so much for taking the time, Cece. Thanks, Ron. Appreciate it. All right, that's it for another episode of our investor series. Uh, we have a few more to go for the rest of the year. I think we're going to do two. I've got two investors more and maybe a third as well before we do our end of year review and sign off for Christmas. And hopefully I'll get tickets to that Man United game. Uh, if you have a hookup, please let me know. Otherwise, see you next week. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Sports Tech All-Stars podcast with Roan Maholtra. If you like our show, let us know and leave a review. And if you want to know more about us, check out sportstechx.com, where you can find our latest industry reports and updates. For a deeper dive into all things sports tech, check out our comprehensive database, SportsTechDB, at sportstechdb.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us at SportsTechX on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Join us next time for another insightful conversation with a leader in sports tech.